I think you've mentioned, I think this is now the seventh year in a row. I was actually doing the math. But I think 2010 was the first year I did the first Sunday of the year. So like seven years in a row. I've had, so it's kind of cool to be able to kind of have, you know, be able to share with you, uh, you know, as we start a new year together. And, and Pastor Keith talked a little bit about this, you know, something that's pretty common around this time of year is New Year's resolutions. I've never been um, too much of a, of a New Year's resolution person. Uh, there have been occasional years where I've, you know, sought to try to set a New, year, New Year's resolution for myself. I've never really been all that successful uh, at them. I don't know if maybe you have had some different luck, uh, or maybe discipline would be a better word, not necessarily luck, <laughs> uh, when it comes to New Year's resolutions. Um, but as I was thinking about it, I was looking into this week some statistics around New Year's resolutions. And Keith mentioned a little bit about this uh, during communion, how, you know, it seems like a lot of people, you know, you make a New Year's resolution and then you get a few days into the new year and already the resolution is shaky at best. So I wanted to look into, like, what are, are there any actual statistics around how successful are we uh, when it comes to New Year's resolutions? So um, I wanted to look at it, how many, what percentage of people actually maintain their New Year's resolutions. So first, looking at the first week, through the first week of the new year, 25% of people have already said they're done uh, with New Year's resolutions. So seven, only 75% of people are successful through the first week of the new year. So already one in four people have said, you know what, forget it, I'm done, I can't do it. Then we start looking through the second week of the new year, and another 4% of people have already said, you know, I'm done. So 71, almost three out of 10 people have quit their New Year's resolution um, within two weeks of the new year. And then we move into one month into the new year, and we're down to 64% of people that are still successful uh, in maintaining their New Year's resolutions. And then six months into the new year, less than half. So more than half of people, and actually, actually, when I looked at those numbers, I was actually kind of surprised it was that high. Uh, I was thinking, you know, we'd be seeing like three weeks into the new year, 75% of the people. So I was actually kind of impressed that, you know, 46% of the people were able to actually maintain it, you know, but they keep dropping as you get, you know, further on uh, throughout the year. Um, so, but, and then I started, you know, as I was looking into these statistics, I saw that there was actually some statistics that were broken down by age as to whether younger people or older people were more successful. Uh, in maintaining their New Year's resolutions throughout the year. So, and I was curious, what do you think? Do you think, who, do you, what, do you think that younger people or older people would be more successful at keeping New Year's resolutions? Who thinks younger people might be more successful at keeping New Year's resolutions? Who thinks older people would be more successful? Okay, it's pretty even, pretty evenly split out there, but let's see. So people who are under 20 years old, 39% of them are successful at obtaining and maintaining consistently their New Year's resolutions throughout the year. People who are over 50, 14% of them are consistently successful at maintaining their New Year's resolutions throughout the year. And that was a little bit surprising to me. I was thinking that older people would do a little bit better. Notice, you know, I'm 38, so I don't fall into either one of those categories. So I, you know, I, I just left that one out. Um, but uh, one thing is clear is that we as humans can be very prone to just walking away from things at times, to quitting things at times. And this is nothing new. And, you know, we can look at our own lives. We can also look at, there's plenty, biblical, plenty of biblical examples of people backing off of commitments for a variety 
of different reasons. And the reasons that we see throughout Scripture are similar to reasons that might come up in our lives why we might quit things. For example, if we see, we look in Luke 22, we see Peter, one of the, mo- one of the most famous interactions of Peter and Jesus, where Jesus is about to go to the cross, and Peter is saying, Jesus, I will never leave you. I'm going to be there with you. I don't care what happens. If I have to die, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be next to you. And Jesus says, you know, Peter, before the cock crows, crows you're going to deny me three times. He says, no way. We know how this kind of goes, that this turns out to be this commitment that Peter has made. turns out to be a little bit more difficult than he had originally thought it was going to be. And sure enough, he denies him three times. Um, and then we look, you know, we look into the, the book of Jonah. And Jonah is a prophet, and he's called by God to go and preach to the people in Nineveh and tell them about their wickedness and tell them that they need to repent. Um, and Jonah ups and just runs away. And, you know, as we read the book in the beginning, we assume, you could just assume that, well, Jonah's afraid. He's up and running away because he's afraid. The people in Nineveh are very brutal. They're very ruthless. They're violent. He doesn't want to be killed. We can make that assumption. But as we get to the end of the book, we realize we get a true kind of picture of why Jonah decides to run away. And it wasn't that he was afraid. He, it was because he didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. He, didn't, he, he knew that if he were to go and preach to the Ninevites and they repented, God would forgive them and he wouldn't judge them and he wouldn't destroy them. And he wanted God. To destroy them. So he, didn't, he wasn't as invested in this goal of the repentance of the Ninevites as God was. So he walks out on his commitment as a prophet. And in an Eli, we see Elijah in 1 Kings 18. One of the most famous confrontations of a prophet in all of the Bible in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, where Elijah faces down all of the prophets of Baal, you know, where he challenges them. He says, you know, if Baal is your God, you bring a sacrifice. And I'll bring a sacrifice to the God of Israel, and we'll see which God shows up. And if you read the story, you may know how it ends up, where, you know, the prophets of Baal are praying and screaming and hollering, and nothing happens, and Elijah prays, and God sends fire and consumes both offerings. And then all the prophets of Baal are killed. And right after this momentous victory on the part of Elijah, we see in the very next chapter, um, Elijah running away after his life gets threatened. And he says, um, he runs away and hides, and he tells God that he's done because no one's listening to him. They're killing all the prophets, and now they want to kill me. Now, we may never have faced situations like these where our lives are being threatened, or, um, but we face situations, where, certainly similar situations, where making a commitment and keeping a commitment was harder than what we thought it was going to be. We've certainly been in situations where maybe we haven't been quite as invested in the outcome of something as maybe we should be. And we certainly, I mean, I know, I certainly have times that I know where, you know, being afraid to fail or feeling like I'm not, being, I'm not as successful as I should be in wanting to, wanting to walk away. And at times we all may consider quitting or walking away from something in our lives. And we think about some of the things that we, that we, do walk away from in our lives, you know, there are some things that are pretty obvious when we think about this idea of quitting. There are things like jobs, maybe teams we're a part of, maybe habits, whether they be good habits or bad habits that we seek to quit, maybe New Year's resolutions, perhaps. These are things that 
you know, when we talk about this idea of quitting and walking away, there are probably some of the more obvious things that come to our mind. And there are things also that we quit in a very, usually in a very clear and direct way. You know, if you quit a job, you have to go to somebody and say, I'm not going to work here anymore. And oftentimes you will have to put that in writing and give some notice. And um, as if you want to be hired somewhere else again, you have to do that. Um, and it's kind, of, you know, it's kind of funny. If you have some spare time and you want to be entertained, you can do a YouTube search. Just search the words, I quit. And you will come up with some very interesting videos. There's been this trend of people creating, you know, videos, humorous videos of ways they try to quit their jobs. You know, people dancing and sending messages to their bosses and things like that. You know, it's funny to watch, but I also wonder if these people are ever going to get hired anywhere else again. Um, But these are things that we quit in a very direct way. It's very clear. There's a moment in time when we say, I'm not going to do this thing anymore. And I walk out on it. But there are also some less obvious things that we may walk away from in our lives. And we don't don't tend to quit these things or walk away from these things as directly. These are some maybe some less obvious things like relationships or other commitments that we may have in our lives where quitting these things tends to take place over a longer period of time as opposed to there being a moment in time when we decide you know, I'm done with this. And then there are things that are more internal and almost imperceptible in our lives that we may walk away from, where there may just be this gradual shift over time. And if we're not paying close attention, we have walked away from something, and it's almost imperceptible. It's almost something that we can't even tell until one day we look up and something that maybe was important to us at one point in our lives really isn't all that important anymore. And quitting in these, those last two categories doesn't tend to be a one-time decision or choice, but more of a drift over time. And this is where we're going to be spending some time talking about today. We're going to be talking about this idea of quitting, quitting things, walking away from things, leaving things behind, not from a conscious choice on our part, but just sort of drifting over time. A gradual, and when we talk about, um, when we talk about this idea of quitting by drifting, talking about this, we're defining it this way, a gradual shift in priorities, values, or beliefs to the point where there is no longer any identifiable commitment to something we were previously committed to. Drift can happen in a lot of areas of our lives. It can happen in our relationships with our spouses. It can happen in relationships with our children. It can happen in relationships with friends. Most importantly, it can certainly happen in our relationship with Christ. It's rare for people in these areas to outright say, I quit, I'm done. But what is less rare is for people to simply stop paying as close attention to these areas until one day you look up and realize what was once so important to you isn't really even all that big a part of your life anymore. And we see things where husbands and wives become more like roommates. Parents lose touch with their kids and their hopes and dreams and desires. Maybe our lives become sort of like a a practical atheism where we may identify ourselves 
as a believer, but we seek to arrange our lives in such a way where there's no real requirement for us to really rely on Christ in our lives. And these are just a few possibilities. And, you, and maybe as you are sitting here thinking about your own life this morning, you can identify somewhere else where you can see this idea of drift coming into play. And Keith mentioned this morning as he was talking about, you know, folks in the, in, in the Bible coming to the latter parts of their lives where this drift has sort of happened. And we're going to spend some time looking at one of those examples this morning that he mentioned. And we're going to look at Solomon this morning. Solomon, you probably know, Solomon becomes known around the world as the richest, one of the richest and wisest king in the entire world. And he gets off to a really, really good start when it comes to his time to be the king of Israel. God is, um, comes to him and basically says to Solomon, you can ask me for whatever you want. You know, you can ask me for riches, you can ask me for victory over your enemies, you can ask me for, you're starting, you're starting your rule, ask me for something, and I will give it to you. And Solomon's response is kind of amazing. He says, basically says, you know, I'm st- I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm a child, I don't know what I'm doing. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to rule well. And God is so impressed with this request that he says, not only am I going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you victory over your enemies. I'm going to give you prosperity. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you wealth. Solomon's request for wisdom not only leads to him being one of the wisest kings ever, one of the wisest men ever, but leads to success in all of these other areas of life. So he starts off asking for wisdom, and then he builds and dedicates the first temple to the Lord in Israel, and then ushers in the golden age of Israel. And he's starting off his rule at a time, and he is completely and utterly committed to God. When the ark is brought into the temple that Solomon built in 1 Kings chapter 8, let's have a look at what he says. He says, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, according to each day's need. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands at this time. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry about that. Solomon, starting off his rule here, starting off his rule, dedicating the temple, bringing the Ark of God into the temple, and he's starting off with this level of commitment that turn, turn our hearts to him to walk in obedience to him and keep the commands and decrees and laws he gave our ancestors. But things change with Solomon over time. His fame grows, his riches grow, and he begins to drift from this strong commitment that he makes here. Have a look at this next passage. A couple chapters later, 1 Kings chapter 10. 
Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities, and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as a sycamore fig trees in the foothills. <clears throat> Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Ku. The royal merchants purchased them from Ku at, a, at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Pretty clear, right? <laughs> Pretty clear what's going wrong with Solomon. I'm sure we all are on the same page, right? Yeah, this is weird. Why does this matter here? You know, why this, and this is sort of like the beginning of Solomon's downfall here. And, it, we're not really, and it's kind of hard to really pick out why that's the case. We kind of have to go backwards a little bit in Israel's history to the time before they entered the promised land to see kind of why what's going on here with Solomon is a little bit of a problem. So look, have a look back with me at Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is Moses kind of sitting down with the nation of Israel, having a little chat with them before they're going to enter the promised land. And he says this, when you enter the land of the Lord, your God, the land, the Lord, your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. And we skip down to verse 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. <clears throat> the king is not supposed to be doing this. He's not supposed to be doing what Solomon is doing here. He's not supposed to be accumulating great numbers of horses for himself. And he's specifically not supposed to be sending people back to Egypt to be importing these horses and chariots for himself. Now, I look at them and say, okay, so he's, he's getting a lot of horses. You know, is that really that big of a deal? I mean, he's got a lot of money. Let the guy have his horses. And, but the thing is, Solomon knows he's not supposed to be doing this. He knows the law. I and mean, we might be saying this is a small deal. But, you know, at least he doesn't violate the next part of this passage in Deuteronomy. Let's have a look at the next verse. And uh, Deuteronomy 17, 17. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Or maybe he did. So we'll have a look at 1 Kings chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Solomon's pride, love of riches, and women eventually crowds out his commitment to God. And what he was once completely and utterly committed to becomes a distant memory. Now, we probably don't have stables full of horses or 300 wives. At least I hope not. But we have things in our life that are attempting to make us drift. 
when it comes to our commitments in our lives. We all do. And the question is, what are the things that are going to put us in danger of drifting when those things rear their ugly heads in our lives? As we read in 1 Kings, Solomon was pretty seriously committed to the Lord. He had firsthand experience of God fulfilling his promises to him. He was granted wisdom and wealth like no one else before him. He had things to hold on to when things rose up to challenge his commitment. But other things began to crowd those things out. Solomon and Solomon sets himself adrift in the sea of these things and lost a connection to the things that anchored him in his relationship with God. When it comes to the commitments, the important commitments in our lives, there are things that can anchor us if we prioritize them. When it comes to our faith, things like having regular time connecting with God and his word, prioritizing a connection to the church family, prioritizing real, authentic relationships with other believers. When it comes to our marriage, you know, prioritizing time with our spouse to connect, praying together, you know, shared interests and hobbies and things like that. There are so many things that we have in our life that demand our time and our attention and our energy. And if we're not intentional about what we spend those things on, we're going to ignore the things that anchor us to the truly important commitments in our lives. This could take the form of academic demands, the demands of running a household, our career demands, financial concerns, our past hurts or regrets even. We have a limitless supply of things that are screaming, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, like a constant, the constant waves of the ocean. And when a life has been battered by these things and we haven't anchored ourselves, at some point we're going to look up and wonder, how did I get here? How did I get where I am today? There's a movie that I really like. It's called The Story of Us. I don't know if you may or may not have seen it. uh, I really like it because it really portrays some of the realities of married life, the, the ups and the downs. Um, it does have an, I believe it has an R rating, so I wouldn't watch it with your kids necessarily, but I believe it just gives us kind of a, uh, a real portrayal of what some of those struggles can look like. I want to share a clip with you this morning. Now, Milo, who wants to go first? Karen? Okay. My high today is that I sat next to Austin Butler at lunch. Oh, that's nice. Is that the boy with the three-legged dog? No, Joel Cummings has the three-legged dog. Uh, Austin has the turtle that snores. And you're low? Camp. What about camp? I don't know. Honey, you had such a good time last year. I know. What is it? Are you afraid you're going to lose touch with Austin over the summer? I don't know. Well, you can always write to each other. When you sign your name, you can put those little X's and O's on there. Guys love that, right? Can't get enough of it. Honey, you're going to have a great time. What about you, Bonehead? What was your high today? Well, my high was that Gary Ellis' mom bought a new juicer, and today I went over to his house and drank a chicken. And your low? I don't have a low. You've got to have a low. Look, I've been sitting here racking my brain, and I do not have a low, okay? All right, all right. What if we enter the chicken smoothie in the high and low category? How about you, Mama? Well, oh, I know what your high is. It's your anniversary. What are you guys going to do tomorrow night? Well, I was going to take your mother out to a romantic dinner and possibly some dancing. But you're right, sweetie. That is our high. 
Look, I'd really love to stick around for your low, but the Dodgers are playing the Giants. Go. Go. I go too, but go. Look, I really don't care what we do tomorrow night. different restaurants just as long as the kids see us leaving together and coming home together right on our first anniversary i gave ben a plastic spoon you know the the takeout kind from a chinese restaurant well it was the one we had used when we shared our first bowl of wonton soup in the park he was afraid he'd lost it and i remember how his face lit up when he opened the little jewelry box i had wrapped it in I keep asking myself, when is that moment in a marriage when a spoon becomes just a spoon? In the beginning of the clip, you know, we look, watch and we think, you know, we're looking at a family that's very intentional about maintaining their connection with each other. However, quickly we see that we're actually looking at a husband and wife who put on a facade for the kids. And they've very clearly drifted. As you watch the rest of the movie, you see two people who clearly loved each other, but as life changed and demands grew, they lost sight of the things that anchored them to their commitment to each other drifted to a place where a spoon is just a spoon. And drift happens when we don't prioritize the things that anchor us. And drift also happens when we don't pay attention to the things that orient us. Question for you, just to be thinking about, how do you evaluate just kind of how you're doing in life? What are the things that you look at in your life to kind of determine, like, Am I okay? What's going on? Is is our family okay? What sort of things, sort of markers do you look at to kind of evaluate those questions in life? Things like career success, financial security. Solomon began in a place where he evaluated, he began in a place where he evaluated himself and the nation of Israel by their faithfulness and obedience to God. He then drifted to a place where he evaluated himself by the number of horses wives he had. And in the end, we see that brought him to a place where he would write in the book of Ecclesiastes that it's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And it's important that we make a conscious choice about the things that we choose to orient ourselves in life. Because if we don't, we don't know where we are, it's hard to know where we should be. If you've ever been to a mall, uh, you have probably seen one of these. Um, I, every time I go into the mall, you know, when I'm trying to get somewhere, I have to stop and look at the map because I don't remember where anything is in the mall. Unless I'm going to like one of the big stores on the end, I can't tell you where something is, uh, in the mall. So I always park in the same place and I walk into the same entrance. This is, I believe this is the Montgomery mall. Um, and I go and find the directory and I need to find that little red dot that you see up there. That little red dot means what? You are here. This is where you are. So I need, not only do I need to look at the map, I need to know where I am 
on the map so that I can then figure out where I need to go. And if you see me looking at the map, it looks kind of like a weird robot dance because I'm like, all right, JCPenney is over there and Sears is that way and I need to go left and figure out where I need to go. Um, the red dot tells me where I am and then I can figure out where on the map I need to go. That's kind of like life sometimes, you know, where we need to kind of have some way of figuring out where am I in life? Where am I in terms of where I feel like maybe God wants me to be? Where am I in terms of my relationship with my wife? Where am I in terms of my family? Where, you know, where am I? How do we evaluate that? What questions do we ask ourselves to determine where we are in life and in what areas of our life might require some proactive attention? Are these questions about finances or promotions or academics? Or are they questions about being connected to Christ, connected to my spouse, connected to my family, other believers? Are they questions about how God might be using me to impact the world? The anchors in our lives keep us close to what's important, and orienting ourselves keeps us moving in the right direction at the right time. So we can drift when we are anchored or oriented. But how do we know if we've drifted? Chances are, if you're asking yourself this question, how do I know if I've drifted? There's probably some area of life where it's happened. There's a good chance that somewhere drift has occurred. But there's a few questions that might give us an idea of where we might need to start looking. First question that might be good for us to ask is, am I okay with things in my life that I was never okay with before? Are there things that maybe whether it's behaviors of mine or behaviors of other people or choices I've made or priorities that I'm setting, are there things right now going on that I'm just okay with being the reality that I wasn't, that I haven't been okay with in the past? Maybe a year ago I wouldn't have been okay with this or six months ago or even a month, one month ago, that I would not, th- this is going on, this is present in my life or family or my relationship with Christ, and this would never have been okay with me before. If, that, if something like that is coming to mind, that might be an area that we want to pay attention to. Are there things in my life that, when brought to my attention, elicit an unreasonably emotional response? You know, when somebody brings something up to me, whether it's my wife or whether it's a friend or whether just something through happenstance comes to my attention, I just immediately just get really irritated or really angry or really emotional. And it seems like even the person I'm talking to is kind of like, wow, where's that coming from? That maybe that is hitting on something, an area of our life that maybe we haven't really wanted to pay attention to, that maybe we should. Do I avoid conversations or thought processes that evaluate where I am in my commitment to someone or something? Are there things that are like, you know, I don't want to think about that. Don't talk to me about that. I don't want to think about that right now. Let's just put that away. I know there's something going on over here that I really just don't want to pay attention to. Growing up in my house, um, this was something that was sort of always the case with my dad growing up, where he would walk into the room and he, he could see somebody that was very visibly upset about something. Like, you, you know, somebody could be, like, crying about something. He'd say, are you okay? And he'd say, I'm fine. Like, okay. 
<laughs> and like turn and kind of walk away. Like if, if you give me a reason, if you give me the, uh, an excuse not to pay attention to this thing, I'm going to take it. Are there things in our lives that we do that with? They're like, if I can find an excuse to not look in this direction, I'm not going to look there. And lastly, and this is a kind of a, might take a little bit of courage to ask this question to get an honest answer. What would my kids say, if you have kids, what would my kids say is the most important thing in my life? Not what do I tell them is the most important thing in my life. But if I were to ask them, if you, according to what I do, what I spend the most amount of time on, what do you think is the most important thing in my life? It takes a, lot, a little bit of courage to give your kids the ability to answer this question honestly. I did ask this question to my son a while back, and he said Disney World. <laughs> so you could see that maybe I was spending a disproportionate amount of time during that point in, in life, you know, focused on something. I mean, we were in the midst of planning a vacation to Disney World at that point in time, but um, still, it was like, okay, maybe, maybe our focus has been drawn to some things that, that may, we should be prioritizing some other uh, aspects of conversation. <clears throat> but you, get, you could get a real true picture of where your priorities are are, according to an outsider, when you give your kids the, that level of ability to be honest with you. You know, we watched that, that um, clip of the story of us, and one of the reasons why I love the movie is the ending. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to spoil it for you. Um, <clears throat> at the end of the movie, Michelle Pfeiffer's character is just, you know, they're driving and just going back over their entire relationship in her mind, good and bad. <clears throat> and they're, on, they're in the car, they're on their way, their kids have been away at summer camp, and they're on their way to pick up their kids from summer camp, and they've decided that they're going to go out to dinner, and they're going to tell their kids that they're getting a divorce. And she's reliving all, like, the years of this relationship in her mind, you know, good and bad. And as this is happening, she looks over, kind of like we saw in that last clip, she looks over at her husband who's driving, and she sees the windshield washer fluid light, light up again. And that's sort of the thing that has been driving her, that drives her crazy, is that her husband never remembers to refill the windshield washer fluid. Not that that's the main area issue in their marriage, but that's just one area like, that she's, like, I'm always reminding him, he never remembers. And she looks over and sees that happen. And then as they're going to pick up their kids, they get out of the car, and um, that leads us to this scene. It's because we're in us. There's a history here, and histories don't happen overnight. You know, in Mesopotamia or, or ancient Troy or somewhere back there, the, 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 there are cities built on top of other cities, but I don't want to build another city. I like this city. I know where we keep the Bactine and, 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 and what kind of mood you're in when you wake up, by which eyebrow is higher, and you always know that I'm a little quiet in the morning and compensate accordingly. That's a dance you perfect over time. And it's hard. It's much harder than I thought it would be. But there's more good than bad. And you don't just give up. And it's not for the sake of the children. But they're, oh, God, they're great kids, aren't they? I mean, God. And we made them. I mean, think about that. It's like they were no people there. And then there were people. And then, and, and, and then they grew. And I won't be able to say to some stranger, Josh, as your hands. I remember how Aaron threw up at the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> then I'll try to relax. 
But let's face it, anybody's going to have traits that get on your nerves. I mean, why shouldn't it be your annoying traits? And, and, and I'm no day at the beach, but I do have a good sense of direction, so at least I can find the beach, which is not a criticism of yours. It's just a, a strength of mine. And God, you're a good friend, and good friends are hard to find. Charlotte said that, and Charlotte's rabbit, I love the way you read that to Aaron, and you take on the voice of Wilbur the pig with such commitment, even when you're bone tired, that speaks volumes about character, and ultimately, isn't that what it comes down to, what a person's made of, because that girl in the pith helmet is still in here. I didn't even know she existed until I met you. And, and I'm afraid if you leave, I may, may never see her again. Even though I said at times you beat her out of me. Isn't that the paradox? Haven't we hit the essential paradox? Give and take, push and pull, yin and yang. The best of times, the worst of times. I think Dickens said it best. The Jack Spratt of it. He could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. But it doesn't really apply here, does it? I guess what I'm trying to say is... I say Joe Buzz because... I love you. I love you too. Michelle's character recalls all the reasons why they were together and recognizes, and recognizes that it's been a lot harder than they thought, but that it's also worth it to f keep fighting and keep going. No matter what area of life we might find ourselves drifting, our relationship with, our, with God, our marriage, our relationship with kids, uh, our relationship with Christ or another, another person, we can take steps with God's help and the help of others to evaluate where we are. We can identify the things that will anchor us. Anchor us to the important things in our lives and reconnect to those things. Drifting doesn't have to be a continual state in any aspect of our lives. God is a God who restores. And with his help, we can reorient and reconnect with him, with others, in whatever area of our lives where we've drifted. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you that you are a God who restores. That no matter where we find ourselves and no matter what area of our lives, that turning, being restored is always available to us because you don't give up on us. I pray, God, that we wouldn't come to a point where we would look back and find that our commitment to something important is completely absent in our lives, especially our commitment to you, to growing and walking with you. I pray, God, that you would help us to identify the areas of our lives where this could be happening or has happened and help us to allow you to work through us to restore us in those areas. In Jesus' name.